Well, what an honor to get to be here with you today. Uh, Becky and I had a chance to go to a, a party, a, a surprise birthday party for a friend in Cape Cod yesterday afternoon. And when we went in, we, were, um, we met two really kind ladies that, that we had not met before who came running up to us and said, we can't believe you're here. And we said, well, we can't believe you're here either. And uh, uh, they said, no, no, no. We follow your class on the Internet, and you've just started the New Testament, and you can't be gone tomorrow. <laughs> we said, well, we're not going to be here long because we've got to catch a flight back and, and be there tomorrow for class. And they said, well, whoever does all of your Internet work, would you thank them for us? Because we watch it, and we've followed, we've gone back and watched Paul, and we've da-da-da, and they, we showed our 82 or 85-year-old father uh, the resurrection class, and, and, the, and just went on and on and on. And it was so nice of Donna and Diana. So if you watch this, Donna and Diana, we honor you and welcome you as uh, members of the class up in... Rhode Island, where they're from. So anyway, those of you who work so hard to do that, because I have nothing to do with that. I just stand up here and do this. But a lot of you put in a lot of work to make this class work. And that's really a shout out to y'all, not, not uh, uh, to Becky or myself. So thank you for all that you do to make this work. Having said that, it's been a busy week. Uh, there's been a lot out this week. This is an exciting opportunity. It just seemed to come out perfectly. Uh, we've started this uh, three or four weeks ago not knowing what would happen with the question, are you familiar with Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman's written a number of different books that we've been using behind this. We've talked about his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind the Bible, uh, who changed it and why, which is his popular effort to undermine the Bible's credibility. And we talked about the problems with Ehrman's approach and the integrity of Scripture for the last few weeks. Then we were going to go next to Forged, but we've moved Forged aside. This is his book that argues that the, the New Testament wasn't really written by the people it claims to be written by, that these are forged documents. We're going to deal with that, but to deal with it totally... We'll deal with it with each book he challenges as we approach those books. And instead, we're moving right now to his third effort, Lost Scriptures. These are books that did not make it into the New Testament in his mind. Uh, uh, these are books that he considers just as valid a scripture as what we have in the New Testament. And this is his effort to argue that whoever chose the books that made it into the Bible was, was choosing not based on any divine inspiration, but was choosing based upon their own personal political and church agenda. And that's what I want to deal with today. Did you see the news this week? I was at a volleyball game, and, and uh, my friend Neil Herman handed me some Xerox pages that he'd run off the Internet on the New York Times. A faded piece of papyrus refers to Jesus' wife. If you read the Fox News, you'd see Harvard Scholar's Discovery suggests Jesus had a wife. Or maybe you follow other newspapers. Was Jesus married? Papyrus may give the clue. Or the Smithsonian Channel tonight will be airing their TV show, The Gospel of Jesus' Wife. The Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Well, I'd like to talk about that today. It seems to fit in with what we're doing. But it's not the whole emphasis of our class because, to be honest with you, it's not worth the whole emphasis of our class. So we'll deal with it in due order. You'll have to stay awake, though, because it comes in a little bit. First, I want to make sure we're all on the same wavelength with some words. So I've, uh, 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 by the way, a lot of this PowerPoint was done on the, the flight <laughs> yesterday, which means I did not have Internet access and so I've sort of made some of these slides up in PowerPoint. You'll have to excuse some of them. I didn't have my scanner thing either to draw the pictures. So excuse me for some of these. Canon. I want to talk today about the New Testament canon. 
Now, when we say canon in this sense, we're not talking about that kind of a canon that has two ends. The New Testament canon is the table of contents. Or the Old Testament canon, same thing. What made it into the Bible? What is authoritative, what belongs in as Holy Scripture, that is called the canon. Why is it called the canon? Because there's an old Semitic word, an ancient Near Eastern word, that we get cane from it, by the way, like sugar cane. But it's an old word that sounds like canon. And it originally meant the reeds, those stiff, hard reeds that that, uh, can dry out and last, but they grow straight. If they're papyrus reeds, they actually grow in a triangle shape. Uh, uh, The stalk is, is shaped like a triangle all up and down. So it's a straight edge. And those reeds became useful as rulers or yardsticks or, or straight edges or measuring sticks because they didn't bend. They were hard. It was like, think of it as a, a, a dry bamboo stalk. And so the word cannon became used not just for reed but for a, a ruler or a yardstick or a, a measuring stick. And then over time from there, it became used for a a table or a table of contents or a list. It became a a word for uh, uh, just something that you measure things by to make sure everything's included that needs to be included. It's, is it the, does it measure up? Okay. And then by the time we get uh, to the fourth century, it's used for the New Testament and the Bible as, as the canon, the, the the closed collection of scriptures, for lack of a better word. So we've got this closed set of documents that are the measuring stick or the table of contents or the list of what is considered holy writing. That's the canon. So when scholars speak of the canon of the Bible, they're not talking about how it shoots this massive ball. They're talking about does it Is it the proper measurement? Is it the proper table of contents? Are the right books and writings in there? That's the canon. Now what Bart Ehrman says about the canon is very much what he says about the Bible in general. It's what we've already seen. He is of the opinion that it's either divine or it's human. It's one or the other. If it is divine, then it is God's word. If it is human, then it is not God's word. And then what Bart Ehrman does is he goes through all these different things that show the humanity involved with Scripture and uses that as a basis for dismissing the idea that it's divine. And that's his approach. Now, I want to ask a question. The idea that something is either divine or human is one I take issue with. And he's a professor. He should know that in a multiple choice test, you don't have to always just give A and B. You can put C, all of the above. Or D, none of the above. You've seen that in tests, haven't you? All of the above is an option. Don't tell me I have to choose between being something being divine or something being human. Do you have to choose that with Jesus? Is Jesus either human or divine? He's both. He's both. That's the way God works. So I ask of Bart Ehrman this question. Is this... Human or divine, how God typically works. I mean, what do you want the canon to be? Do you want God out of some mysterious cloud to just produce a paper that says, here's your table of contents for the Bible? Do you want God just to drop from heaven the letters of the table of contents of the Bible? 
Do we think we should get a bowl of, of alphabet soup? And in spoonfuls, one by one, just the Matthew, Mark, Luke. God is sending us a message. Is it a Ouija board? What do you, I mean, is that the way God works? Now, granted, he wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone. He can work that way if he chooses to. But that's the rarity. That's not the way he normally works. God does not normally... I mean, this idea that, oh, the canon must be divine or human. How are you going to have a divine canon? Is God going to put someone in a trance? Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts and the letters to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I mean, that's not the way God typically works. So, I want to make another suggestion. I want to say that the way God typically works, and the way that we see Him work in our experience, as well as in Scripture, is through humanity. He works through our actions. He works through our minds. When Paul wrote to the Romans, Paul said, Be transformed by the renewal of your minds that by testing. David talked about that word testing the way God tests us. This is by us testing. By us measuring. We can determine what God's will is. God, look, I... I don't want to be a computer. I don't want to be a puppet on strings where God just does whatever He wants to and I have no choice in the matter. That's not the way we've been made. We were made in His image. We have choice. We're not Pavlov's dog where we have to come running salivating every time the bell rings. We are people with free choice. An ability to choose. Let me put it that way. Within our nature, an ability to choose. So God is at work in us to transform our minds so that we can determine through His Holy Spirit what is right and proper and is His will. If you want Him to write down on the wall for you what you, if you've got a decision in front of you, I've got to decide, do I move or do I stay? Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Do I major in this? Do I not major in this? Do I talk to my wife about this? Do I not talk to my wife about this? Whatever the decision is, if your answer is, Lord, I want to pray about this and I want you to write it in the alphabet soup, I suspect you will be sorely disappointed. And I suspect the answer is probably going to be God saying, continue to pray about it, study about it, think about it. I am at work in your mind and trust me, acknowledge me in all your ways and trust that I will make your path straight. And that may not be the way we want it. And that may not be the way we would do it if we were God. But that's the way God typically does it. This is why Paul's able to write to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because you can, you can go to the bank on this. That God is the one who's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work within you. So you go to work knowing you're not doing it alone. You can work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing, confident, God is at work in you. This is the way God works. It's not divine or human. God doesn't do divine or human. God does divine and human. God is not so small that he's limited to two choices. It's either my way or your way. No, God is able to work his will out through humanity. 
The story of the Old Testament over and over is God works his will out even through the unbelievers. Pharaoh was the hand of God. Nebuchadnezzar was the hand of God. They may not have realized it. But even as they were making their own choices, God was able to work. Judas Iscariot made his own choices. He was Judas the betrayer, as the Gospels call him. But through his own choices, God brought the redemption of humanity. God is able to work through humanity. That's the thrill of being alive and being his child. So, Scripture, it's divine and human. Here's the best example I can give you of this uh, uh, from, that I know of. Uh, the New Testament church had a real issue. The issue was this. Everybody who was becoming a Christian initially were Jews. It was to the Jew first. The apostles were Jews. It were the, they were the Jews on Pentecost, 3,000. They were Jews, 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 Jews until Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. Paul goes out on missionary trips with Barnabas and others. And Gentiles start coming into the church. But then the issue becomes the Gentile. Does the Gentile have to become a Jew to be a Christian? This was a huge issue with the church. Must a Gentile first be... Because everybody was a Jew than a Christian. Does the road to being a Christian go through Judaism? For everybody, do you have to be a Jew to be a Christian? Do, do the males have to be circumcised? Do you have to follow Jewish dietary laws, Jewish ceremonial laws? I'm not talking about ethical provisions that God gave to the world, but were much clearer to the Jews. I'm talking about ceremonial things that mark the Jews out as a separate people. Do Christians have to become those Jews to become a Christian? And this was a huge issue. And Paul and Barnabas, having debated on the trail with people and having had frustrations with Jewish Christian missionaries who were following Paul and Barnabas and arguing that you had to follow Jewish law in addition to putting your faith in Christ. So Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem, and Acts chapter 15 talks about this. Scholars call it the Jerusalem Conference. And what happens is, is they go to Jerusalem, and there is they meet with the apostles, they meet with the elders of the church, and they meet with the church. And in this big meeting, there's a massive, quote, debate. This is what Luke says. Luke says, now, they didn't just get alphabet soup out. Well, what's the will of God? I don't know. Get some alphabet soup and let's find out. They didn't shake the sticks to see which one came out first. They didn't go get fortune cookies and open it up until one finally got something that said something relevant. They debated they fussed. They argued all the sides. And then they started talking about the experiences that they had had. Peter kind of ends the debate and says, Time out, guys. Let me remind you what happened with Cornelius. Let me remind you what God showed me in that vision. See, because God can do things differently. But he says, let me remind you of that. And then Paul and Barnabas start sharing what happened on the mission field. And then James comes in and says, hey, remember what the Old Testament, the scriptures, the Bible says about this. So they debate, they look at experience, they look at scripture, and then they came to a decision. And their decision included sending Paul and Barnabas and some others with a letter. And the letter detailing the decision that's going out to the mission world is one of the most telling pieces of Scripture about how God has worked 
through divine and human to get his message out. The letter said, Greetings. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit that we give you the following instructions. The church felt confident that through debate, prayerful debate, through prayerful examination of how God had been working, through prayerful scrutiny and study and application of Scripture, that the leadership, blessed with the Holy Spirit, came to the decision that was in fact a divine decision. And they wrote the church accordingly. Now, that's it. It's divine and human. God works His message out through humans. It's an amazing thing that He's done. Now, there are lots of people who want to challenge it. There are lots of people who want to say, well, this was not done right. There are lots of people who are always trying to challenge the work of God. It's almost as if there's an enemy afoot. Trying to undermine. You know, the challenges, I just looked at the last decade, and I pulled out several of the biggest challenges of the last decade. One of them is kind of a joke. But it's an amazing joke that made this one man very, very rich. It's called the Da Vinci Code. It's not only um, totally baseless in history, but Salman Rushdie, who's one of my favorite writers, said, it's not even good literature. I put a quote in there that he gave at a lecture in Kansas City where he said, the Da Vinci Code gives a bad name to bad literature. It's it's just worse than you could ever imagine. It's not even good writing, much less good history. And over time, it's been dispelled by lots of good books, and we can set it aside. But then in 2006, National Geographic spent a few million dollars and made a big splash with the Judas Gospel. National Geographic not only put it on the front of their magazine, not only made a TV show out of it, but they, put a, they published a book. It's a translation and a commentary on the Gospel of Judas. The translation and the commentary is not only by people who could translate this 4th century Coptic work, but the commentary includes writing by... Bart Ehrman. This hit the news big in 2006. Six years ago, the headlines were reading, oh, the Telegraph said, forbidden gospel will show Judas was acting for God. Or how about this headline from the Chicago Sun-Times? Was Judas really a good guy? A new gospel challenges age-old beliefs. Well, what do we know about the gospel of Judas? Did our writers, uh, our compilers of the Bible, the Christians that, that put together the canon, did they mess up not including the gospel of Judas? Well, the gospel of Judas was a a document found by all intents and purposes out of Egypt. It's papyrus fragments. It actually was in a group of three different documents. It was painstakingly put back together. It had crumbled because someone had stored it in the freezer for a while, thinking that would help it not decay and not realizing that that's actually the exact opposite of what you should do with papyrus. But aside from all of that, they took about a one-fourth inch by one-fourth inch square and they carbon dated the papyrus. The papyrus dated to somewhere around 220 to 340. So that's when it was actually, uh, this copy was made. But the actual writing probably goes back around 80 years or so before the front end of this. The earliest it could have actually been composed is around 140 A.D., according to most general scholars. 
And what it is, is basically it's a heretical writing. It's heresy. It was written a hundred years after Christ's death. It was not written within the time frame of the apostles or eyewitnesses or anybody who was alive at the time of Christ. It was written over a hundred years later, and it was written in Egypt, and it was written as part of the Gnostic heresy. It was probably written, uh, uh, well, let me take a time out. I don't want to get ahead of myself. If we consider that, that then, then there's a lot of speculation. Before we get to the facts, let me give you some speculation. Uh, uh, let me read you what Bart Ehrman says about it. Because he does a really good job at giving a synopsis of what the Gospel of Judas says. And by the way, I would urge anybody to read the Gospel of Judas. You can read the Gospel of Judas and easily tell there's a real difference between this Gospel and the New Testament Gospels. And it's not because someone just had a power struggle in the early church and declared all of the followers of the Gospel of Judas anathema and kicked them out. This was not some power struggle by the church a la Da Vinci Code in the 300 AD era. But here's what the Gospel of Thomas says succinctly. It portrays Judas quite differently from anything we previously knew. He's not the evil, corrupt, devil-inspired follower of Jesus who betrayed his master by handing him over to his enemies. He is instead Jesus' closest, intimate, and friend. The one who understood Jesus better than anyone else. Who turned Jesus over to the authorities because Jesus wanted him to do so. In handing him over, Judas performed the greatest service imaginable. According to the gospel... Jesus, according to this gospel, Jesus wanted to escape this material world that stands opposed to God and return to his heavenly home. This was a movement that had derived, taken on some Christian language, but it derived from Plato's idea that that there is an eternal soul locked inside this physical body. And the best thing you could do is get rid of the physical body so that the soul could be released. So Judas gets a special secret from Jesus because he's head and shoulders above the other apostles. And Judas, the special secret that he gets is, hey, I'm going to use you to release me. We're bound up in this body. But I can go return to the eons where I belong. If I can just get out of this body. Now, let's look at some facts behind this gospel. In trying to make a determination of, does this belong in the New Testament? Was this, is the New Testament simply a composite of what the victors put together? In some long age struggle against other Christians. Well, the Gospel of Judas was written up in 180 A.D. Okay? Gospel of Judas is written up by 180 A.D. We know this because before we ever got to the Gospel of Judas that was discovered, we read about the Gospel of Judas in the writings of the Bishop of Lyon. His name was St. Irenaeus. And St. Irenaeus wrote a book that's commonly called Against Heresies. And he wrote up the gospel of Judas and said, this is a heresy that exists within the church. Here's what they believe. It may not be the exact same gospel of Judas, but it at least carries the same beliefs. Scholars are divided on that issue. So we knew about it beforehand. Now here's another fact. The New Testament gospels weren't written 180 A.D. or even 140 A.D., which is the earliest scholar I've seen on the gospel of Judas. Everybody, even the most cynical, skeptical scholar around today that gets published, will readily admit that the New Testament Gospels were written by 100 A.D. The last Gospel to be written was the Gospel of John, and we actually have a fragment of it that was found in Egypt around 125 A.D. So it made it all the way to Egypt by then. The outside date for any of the Gospels is 100. The Gospels, Mark was likely the first Gospel written. It was likely written within 30 years of the death of Jesus. 
It was written at the time where Peter and Paul were about to be martyred, but there were still plenty of people alive who experienced the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament Gospels were written at a time where if they were lies, people could readily say, that's a lie. The Gospel of Judas is not a competitor of the Gospels that were written early. There's not a Gospel written as early as the Gospels that are in the Bible. Certainly not as early as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No one disputes that. We're looking at the, this is not, gee, who was the stronger one that won out in the end with the church and destroyed and rewrote history and got rid of all the others. This is, which were the original ones? Where did it start? And which ones were the heresies? That's what it is. The Gospel of Judas actually mocks the apostolic church. This is not a view, see, Airman, bless his heart, is not a big one on consistency. Ehrman says, moreover, I mean, this is his, his theory. His theory is that only one set of early Christian beliefs emerged as victorious. I can put this on here. In the heated disputes over what to believe. Hold on, I was handed cuticle oil because evidently my cuticles don't look good when I do this for some of the <laughs> ladies out there. Oh, oh, that was before class. Okay. Now, let's see what we have here. Moreover, the victors in the struggles to establish Christian orthodoxy, what we should believe, not only won their theological battles, they rewrote the history of the conflict. Later readers, i.e. you and me, the stupid people, naturally assumed the victorious views had been embraced by the vast majority of Christians from the very beginning, all the way back to Jesus and his closest followers, the apostles. We just naively assumed that. The Gospels, the Bible, was authoritative. Bless our hearts, we did not know. That there were all these other Gospels that just got stomped out. As he says in his commentary on the Gospel of Judas. Here it is in brief. In brief. My, what nice looking cuticles you have. (laughs) In brief. One of the competing groups in Christianity succeeded in overwhelming all the others. This group gained more converts than its opponents, and managed to relegate all its competitors to the margins. This group decided what the church's organizational structure would be. This group decided which creeds Christian would recite. And this group decided which books would be accepted as Scripture. This is what became orthodox. This group became orthodox. And once it had sealed its victory over all its opponents, it rewrote the history of the engagement, claiming it had always been the majority view of Christianity, claiming its views had always been the views of the apostolic churches and of the apostles, and that its creeds were rooted directly in the teachings of Jesus. It claimed that the books it accepted as Scripture proved the point because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story as the first orthodoxy had grown accustomed to hearing it, or the early orthodoxy, proto-orthodox. This is what he's saying. He's saying, well, y'all just pretend that you were the original story because you won. History is written by the victors. You got to rewrite history. But the truth of the matter is it wasn't you. Well, That's just wrong. The gospel of Judas makes fun of the apostolic church. It's not the apostolic church. It mocks the Eucharist. It mocks coming together and worshiping. It mocks the apostles. It's not the apostolic church. It doesn't even have the resurrection of Jesus. Why would it have a resurrected Jesus? He's supposed to be trying to get out of his body. 
He's not coming back into it. Don't tell me that the apostolic church didn't believe in a resurrected Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians or in Galatians 1, he's an apostle because God raised Jesus from the dead. That's not made up. John, that's written in 50 AD at the latest. This is not, oh gee, the, it was just rewritten by the victors. The apostles never said that. Read your Bible, Bart. That's what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead, and was seen by hundreds of people who are still alive today who can attest to it if you have any doubt at all. That's not... Oh, this was built by the church 300 years later after they stomped out all those nasty little Gospel of Judas people. The Gospel of Judas has no place alongside this in the apostolic church. That's the writings of the apostles. That's not reconstructed history. That's going back over a hundred years before the Gospel of Judas. You don't rewrite that. Paul was judging heretical Gospels not the winners in some 300 B.C. A.D. church fight. In other words, the guys who made this decision weren't some church people, 300 A.D. The guys who said, no, this is the gospel, not that, are the apostles. It is Paul who said in Galatians 1, if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul is saying, if someone else comes with a different gospel beyond the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which he clarifies as his gospel. He says that later in Galatians. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. I only have one question. You know, his whole thing, Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Christ lives in me. We were buried with Christ in baptism. We put on Christ. We were resurrected to a new life. He told the Romans. This is, this is not, gee, the church in 300 AD made the decision. This is what the apostles taught. This is New Testament Christianity. The heresy is what came up a hundred years plus later. That's not hard. That's timeline logic. And, and I think he's smart enough to know that. The early church accepted our Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were accepted by the early church long before the Gospel of Judas was written. Long before 300 A.D. where someone finally said, here are the books that belong in Holy Scripture. And if you want more about that, come back next week because right now I don't have much time and I need to get on. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Houston Chronicle this week. Was Jesus married? Papyrus may give a clue. We're through with the Gospel of Judas challenge. Let's talk about this. Uh, how about this one? USA Today. Ancient papyrus refers, fragment refers to Jesus' wife. There was another one headlined, Mrs. Jesus? Question mark. And it all concerns this fragment that's the size of a business card that's uh, uh, of question provenance. Some unknown guy gave it to Karen King, who teaches at Harvard. This unknown guy got it from another fellow who's now dead, who got it from another fellow that we don't know. Sometime back in East Germany, when it was still communist, before Reagan brought down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev, and, and, and that's back in the early 70s. And someone says it probably came from an Egyptian dump, garbage dump, nobody knows. But there are a lot of people who are questioning it. Um, not just where it came from, but whether or not it's valid. It looks like it's 4th century Coptic, which means written in the 300s in Egypt, and, and it very well could be. It's a very small piece. It's got very straight edges, even though it doesn't end the sentences. So it looks like someone may have torn it or cut it. Sometimes, though, that doesn't mean it's inauthentic. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, antiquities dealers will do that so they can take one piece of parchment and sell it twice because they make two pieces of parchment out of it or something. So uh, we don't know for sure. It's, they don't want to radiocarbon test it because they don't want to lose that part of it. 
but they are putting it under the ink under a spectrometer to see whether or not that ink was written at the time and those results should be out. Here's what it says. We don't know what it said at the start of the sentence, but then it says not. My mother has given me. And it looks like life starts there, but we don't know for certain. This translation, by the way, is not Karen King's. It's very close. But this is Simon Gathercole's translation, uh, uh, which he did for our class and has since put on the Internet. But he emailed our class and said, hey, uh, I was giving a library lecture on this last week, and look what's come up. And here's my info on it if it helps. So thank you, Simon. Um, the disciples said to Jesus, is on the second line, we don't know what's before it and what's after it, so the brackets are still there. The third line, we don't know what's before or after, but it says deny, Mary is worthy of it. The next line says, Jesus said to them, my wife. The next line says, she will be able to be a disciple to me. And the last line, we're not sure, but it looks like let evil man. As for me, I am with her because, and then there's the word, an image, down on the very bottom. Now that's all we've got from it. From that, Karen King's calling this the gospel of Jesus' wife. That'd be like taking the gospel of John and pulling out that one fragment about Nicodemus and calling it the gospel of Nicodemus. I don't know why this is now the gospel of Jesus' wife. We don't even know what the entire book would have said. We don't know anything else around it. But that's the kind of stuff that makes for wonderful headlines. So is it an authentic piece? We don't know. Some say yes. She's got three scholars who support her in that. They're all very strong scholars. But there are equally strong scholars who are saying no. And more numerous ones. We'll find out maybe. But whether it's authentic or not, Let's be clear on a couple of things. Number one, this does not support the Da Vinci Code idea that Jesus was married. Okay, it just doesn't. Even Karen King, the Harvard professor, says multiple times, please don't say this proves Dan Brown right. The Da Vinci Code's so outlandish and so out there, no scholar believes that it's right, it's fiction. This does not mean that Jesus was married. Even Karen King, who published this, she made a big splash at an international conference on Coptic literature that she was uh, uh, presenting a paper on in Rome last Tuesday. That's why this hit all the headlines and everything else. So she makes the presentation. She's supposed to publish her paper on it in the Harvard Theology Review, Theological Review, but Harvard won't publish it yet because they had anonymous scholars look over it and those anonymous scholars have questions about its authenticity. And so until there's more proof of the authenticity, Harvard won't publish her article. But her article, you can still download it in its current version. I did and read it. She's very clear. She says, repeatedly cautioned, this fragment should not be taken as proof that Jesus, the historical person, was actually married. Why? The fragment's old. And this fragment represents a movement that we know was there. Not fragments old. The fragment is not as old as it should be to make a comment on the life of Jesus. It's just not. This fragment, the earliest you're going to date it is Gospel of Judas or later. 140, 150 AD for the original that was then translated and written out. So you're over a hundred years past. We know at this point in time that there were heretical writings like the Gospel of Judas. There were a lot of heretical writings out of Egypt written in Coptic that talk about the role of women in the cosmic order of things. So this is not something bizarre. This is not something unusual. And even Karen King will say the text is not historically reliable. We can't rely upon this fragment according to the woman who started this fire and ignited it. We can't rely on this as actual history. What it actually does is show us what some in the church, not church, what some in some heretical groups were putting out. Here's the way she said it. The text was probably written centuries after Jesus lived, and all other early historical, reliable Christian literature is silent on the question. You don't have anything reliable saying that Jesus is married. That's just the facts. Now, I've told you that. We've got to keep moving. Here's the problem. 
King promotes this same idea. And this is why it's a big deal to her. She calls it the myth of origins. For King, this idea that there is Scripture that dates all the way back to the apostles and there's this chain of orthodoxy from the New Testament church to today is a myth of origins. She says there was a hodgepodge of different beliefs in the early church. And this uh, is just, uh, what we experience today is just the one that seemed to win out over the others. Now, I would suggest to you that there is an element of what she's saying that's true, but that it's not true from the perspective she gives it. See, I would suggest to you, and I want you to come back next week because that's when we're going to deal with this. But let me give you a snapshot. The apostles delivered what the apostles got. It's exactly what Jesus prophesied in John 14, 15, and 16, that after he died, the Holy Spirit would come, would remind them of what had happened, would speak through them, would teach them the significance and importance of it so that they could go into all of the nations and preach the gospel, which they did. And we have secure writings from that time and from that age. The problem is... There are always people in the next generation who want to go a different direction. How many of you have had children before? How many of you have children who have just followed in lockstep everything you believe and do? The next generation always wants something new, always wants to go a different direction, and then the next generation, and then the next generation, and you roll down three or four generations when they don't have Holy Scripture put together. Some have the writings of Paul. Some have the Gospels. Some have, and all of a sudden, there's lots of error. Heavens, I can go on the internet and show you some crazy people who believe things. The distance, David Chapman made this point, the distance between the life and death of Jesus and the first writing of some of these Gospels that we're now getting is the same distance in time between Abraham Lincoln and today. Now, if 2,000 years from now someone comes across the movie Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer, (laughs) do you think for a moment that they're going to say, oh my gosh, in 2012 there were a lot of people in America who thought Abraham Lincoln was a vampire slayer. I'm sorry. That may make for nice press. It may enable Bart Ehrman to make enough money to buy a great home over in England and to get on all sorts of TV shows and bestseller lists. But it's just not the truth. You know, I, get, I, I laugh and cry at people who make fun of evangelical Christians or conservative Bible-believing Christians as if we're stupid. And then they put pablum out that's just obviously there to generate money and to try and sow disbelief because this is, this is just the facts. I mean, the facts are, this is what Jesus did. This is what the earliest church we've got wrote. These are the writings of Paul. And to say that, that this is something that was put together later and that there's a myth of its origin is just wrong. If anything, certainly there was heresy and there were lots of diverse groups and views, but the cream rose to the top. And the church had no trouble through divine and human work discerning the truth. We have no trouble. I'm telling you, I could put all of the Gospels out there in front of you. I could put all of them in front of you. I would say, take a week, read all of them. Here are the dates of them. Which one is authentic? And nobody's going to have trouble with that. It's not a hard thing. The early ones are the authentic ones. The late ones aren't. I mean, if, if we grant that the apostles... See, here's the problem. Bart Ehrman doesn't believe in God. He says he doesn't. Well, if you don't believe in God, then yeah, I guess all of these can be called scriptures because you don't have scripture to start with. There's nothing holy about any of it. So yeah, you might as well say, well, hey, it's just a whole bunch. They're all the same. It's just this was to the victors go the spoils, so y'all got to define what what happens. Well, it's because you don't believe in God. 
But for those who believe in God and who believe that Jesus was his son, it's not hard to figure out what the Bible teaches and what belongs in the Bible. It's just not rocket science. I've over-talked my time. Y'all have been very polite. But before we leave, can I give you three points for home? This was the language out of the letter that the, the apostles wrote after their debate, their study, their reflection. They said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's God at work renewing our minds and working through us. That's God renewing our minds. Lord, please renew our minds and work through us to touch the lives of others. Point for home two. I delivered to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. Now Paul gave away everything in his life. Gave away everything in his life. And he said, everything is rubbish, garbage compared to knowing this. Jesus died for our sins, was buried and resurrected. Everything else he counted as garbage, loss, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ crucified and the power of his resurrection. And that is no different today. Paul said, there are some who want to trouble you. There are some who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we are an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel contrary to this one, let him be accursed. And then he actually says, I will repeat it. If we are an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel contrary to this, let him be condemned, accursed, anathema. That's no less true today. Don't you ever waver in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, renew our minds. Sharpen our focus. Instill in us the power of your resurrection to proclaim with confidence the work that you've done in history to expose the darkness, to be prepared to defend the faith, Lord, that's been handed down from the apostles, secured by your might, so that we even have it today. We thank you we live in a land where we have Holy Scripture translated into a language we can read and understand and share with others. Continue to focus our mind on your truth, Lord, and let your Son and your kingdom explode on earth and cover the earth through the, the work of your Spirit in us, the body of Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Amen.